it was not an anti-industry issue. It was, let's, let's talk to the people who were impacted directly by it. Former fisheries minister Bernadette Jordan consulted with First Nations and asked whether they wanted fish farms in their territories. They said no. And that was the biggest influence on her decision in 2020 to close fish farms in the Discovery Islands. When I told them, because I actually met with the chiefs prior to the decision going out, like within an hour of the decision going out, I wish I had freeze-framed their faces. Uh, the, The absolute look of shock from them when I told them what my decision was. It was something to see because they said, you're the first one who's listened to us. Bernadette says industry's argument when they challenged the decision in court that they were caught off guard was simply not true. She warned them in meetings about what might happen. And since the Cohen inquiry, they'd been getting one-year licenses instead of the three or six they got in the past. Even though it wasn't a rushed decision because we'd been having these conversations for months previous with First Nations, the challenge, of course, was for industry to all of a sudden not get what they've always had. But of course, in the end, industry did get what they wanted. Bernadette Jordan lost her government seat in the 2021 election. And in April of 2022, the court overturned her decision to close fish farms in the Discovery Islands. Now the issue was handed over to the new minister. The Honorable Joyce Catherine Murray, Minister of Fisheries, Oceans, and the Canadian Coast Guard. I, Joyce Catherine Murray, do solemnly and sincerely promise and declare that I will truly and faithfully and to the best of my... Joyce Murray has lived in Vancouver's Point Grey area since 1961 and has represented the riding of Vancouver Quadra since 2008 for the federal Liberals. But she's held numerous positions in government, including as Minister of Water, Land and Air Protection for BC's government in the mid-2000s. So many people took her appointment as the Ministry of Fisheries and Oceans as a signal that the Prime Minister's promise to get rid of fish farms in B.C. by 2025 was still in play. But with the previous minister's court laws still fresh, there was a lot of apprehension about just what the minister could do on the fish farm issue. The Parliamentary Standing Committee on Fisheries and Oceans holds hearings on a variety of subjects related to the department, And in the spring of 2022, it was looking at how DFO uses science in making its decisions. It wanted to explore the new minister's plans. She was asked how she would balance the need for a healthy wild fishery with jobs. So I think we all have the same interest, which is that in the long term, we have a healthy ocean because it's the healthy ocean that uh, is the basis for healthy local economies. MP Ken Hardy from British Columbia, a longtime member of the committee, asked how DFO science would fit into that plan. We recall uh, in the last parliament, uh, you know, we saw science out of the DFO that said uh, the aquaculture uh, um, installations in Discovery Islands weren't a significant risk. That didn't pass the sniff test. Well, thank you for that. Uh, the, the science of DFO says that there is minimal risk from particular uh, threats to the wild Pacific salmon. However, those minimal risks are cumulative if there is a number of potential diseases or parasites. And in my view, with the absolute crisis that we're in with our wild Pacific salmon, any addressable uh, threats need to be addressed because we want to be we want to be the generation that has protected and made more resilient and more healthy our wild Pacific salmon, uh, not the other way around. So that's, uh, the science is important, uh, but so is the outcome, and that's what I'm determined to focus on. Welcome to the Salmon People podcast. I'm Sandra Bartlett. This podcast is a co-production with Canada's National Observer. We're crowdfunding to cover the cost of the podcast. And if you'd like to support us, you can find the link in the show notes telling you how. And please give it a five-star rating. It helps others find us. This is the final episode. 
When I set out to tell this story, people, family, friends, former colleagues, when I told them I wanted to make a podcast about salmon, they looked at me like I'd lost my mind. Salmon, it turns out, are about as unsexy as it gets, and the sea lice certainly don't help. But I've learned along the way what this story is really about. Survival, justice, and this urge, a lot like the salmon's own instinct to swim upstream, to do what needs to be done, even if it goes against industry and government, to swim against the current. Over the past nine episodes, we've traveled from 1980 to 2022, following the story of BC's wild salmon and the salmon people. Through inquiries and reports, competing research, competing values, pirate ships, and shady surveillance. But the story is still moving, and the future for these fish is still full of questions. Today's episode, The Mandate versus the Mandarins. As 2022 started, there were 10 empty farms in the Broughton Archipelago, and it was First Nations, not the minister, who would decide if the seven others in the area would also be closed when their licenses expired. Chief Bob Chamberlain of the Kwikwasutinu Kwaknis First Nation says the agreement that confirmed his people's right to make that call was groundbreaking. The first thoughts that I arrived at were, this is the only place in the world where fish farms are leaving the ocean. From a global perspective, everywhere else, they're still there operating. People are still fighting to get them out. And yet, through this agreement, we were able to move uh, what is a globally dominant industry out of the ocean and to protect wild salmon. Alex Morton says during her 20 years of fighting the fish farms, she would never have imagined a time when the industry would be accountable to First Nations. The First Nations of the Broughton would be allowed onto the farms to confirm the sea lice counts, to do health checks. They would be allowed to screen the farm salmon for pathogens before they went into the farms and decide whether they wanted these infected fish or not. Every decision, every move that these companies made with their fish had to be approved by these three nations first. Kelly Speck of the Namgis First Nation was part of the team inspecting the farms. We've been going out and seeing the farms. We, we have uh, the ability to be on their structures, to go on their boats when they're doing certain activities, to observe the way they do some of their work. We called into question the way they were doing some of their auditing and their own monitoring of the farm operations. The farms often have little warning the First Nation regulators are coming. For instance, you know, we have the right under our agreement to call them at 7.30 in the morning and say, we're coming today just to check on something. And sometimes what they found was not just a risk to the wild salmon, but to the environment as well. Look at this. This is like oil tanks that are sitting unsecured on floating barges near this farm. They drop in the water, then they're creating an environmental hazard. It turned out that there was all sorts of junk on some of these farms. So they, they fell off a structure or they were thrown overboard or whatever. They would have done this presumably when they decommissioned, only in some cases they were never planning to decommission. So they could have sat there for years, you know, resting and causing problems for sea life. This was at odds with what industry says about the ocean under their farms. When I visited a Greek seafood farm, Senior manager Rocky Boschman told me the bottom of the fish farm is cleaned out every time the fish are sent to market and is pristine by the time new fish are brought in. We cannot put fish back on this farm until it goes back to the beginning, until there's no measured uh, uh, impact on the bottom. Then we'll, we will get an approval to put fish back again. So there's two, two processes there. First of all, we want to not have an impact on the bottom. We don't want to deposit materials on the bottom. Second of all, if we are somewhere, we want it to be the kind of bottom that reclamates itself very quickly. In most cases in salmon farming in BC, after three months, you would never know a farm was there. And that's the case on these farms. 
First Nations aren't monitoring grig fish farms, so maybe theirs are cleaner than others. I asked Ian Roberts of Maui what it was like having First Nations poking around their fish farms. We've hosted over 200 visits and inspections of our farms from local representatives and held several meetings to discuss this plan and and how it's uh, progressing. We respect the right of First Nations to decide what occurs in their territory. We also respect the right of First Nations to actively participate in our business to, to understand more about it. So we're very committed to this agreement till the end. The three First Nations hired a fish veterinarian to review what they were finding on the farms, and the fish farms pay the lab costs. Review those results and discuss what are some of the appropriate actions that they should be taking to manage you know, different outbreaks of different diseases potentially on their fish. And we're also collecting data on sea lice, um, the use of chemicals, etc., and other procedures. And Alex Morton is grateful that the old enemy, sea lice, is also being watched and studied. The nations also got the right to change the lice limit on these farms. The government said they were allowed three. The nation said, nope, you're allowed two. We don't think sea lice per fish is a very good indicator. If you have a large farm with a million fish and it's three million sea lice at, even at one, you can easily see how you know, you're getting to two, you're getting to three, all of a sudden, a huge impact. So they started by dropping the level to two sea lice per fish. Which is a trigger for them not only to have a plan, but to actually carry it out. They're required to take action. The DFO regulations, I believe, still say that they just need to have a plan. It doesn't sort of make sense to just have a plan if there's no enforcement of acting on that plan. Didn't you find that a bit weird? Oh, yes. And that that was one of our concerns is that the, the actual regulatory regime didn't require there to be proof that they had actually implemented the plan. Kelly says during the migratory season, when the wild juvenile salmon are swimming past the farms on their way to the ocean, sea lice levels are closely watched. When the sea lice limit is reached, the farms have to treat the fish. And if the sea lice come back, treat again. So at the end of the second treatment, the clock's ticking. If they can't keep it there, for the, uh, the next period of time, and I do believe it's 30 days, then they have to take the fish out of the water. And it's actually in the agreement. And then ultimately there is the possibility that they could actually have to take the fish out of a particular farm if they can't keep it below the threshold during the out-migration period. DFO has never ordered a fish farm to take all their fish out of a farm if the sea lice treatments aren't working. For many years, a pesticide called slice was used. The pesticide is in the fish feed, and the sea lice can detect it on the fish and don't latch on. Sean Godwin published a study in March of 2022 that showed the sea lice in B.C. was resistant to slice. But the B.C. farms were continuing to use it. Sean says scientists have wanted to study slice resistance in B.C. for years, but despite repeated requests, they couldn't get any data. Freedom of information requests made specifically trying to get these data, and they just never came up. Sean is one of the scientists who started his research career counting sea lice on juvenile salmon at Alex Morton's Salmon Coast Field Station. He's now on the board of directors. I joined as a field technician, and every day we went out in boats and we caught uh, little baby juvenile salmon that were migrating along the coast through the fjords of the Broughton Archipelago, and they were passing salmon farms. And so throughout their migration, we were catching the baby salmon, looking how many sea lice on them, and we saw them pick them up as they went along uh, their migration past the salmon farms. His study on the pesticide slice used data from the fish farms. It was a first. First Nations were calling the shots, and the farms had to hand over the data. And since Sean was now knee-deep in sea lice, so to speak, he jumped at the chance to look at farm data on sea lice treatments. We found that resistance appears to have 
increased dramatically since 2019 to the point that everywhere else in the world, this chemical EMB slice wouldn't really be used anymore. And essentially, it told us that BC needs to catch up with the rest of the world in terms of having more options to control sea lice on salmon farms. Sean says the industry wasn't surprised by the study. In fact, they'd been asking DFO for permission to use other treatment methods for more than a decade. And so the response was, yes, this isn't anything new to us. We're working on it, essentially. The issue with that, of course, is that it was not making these statements publicly, not not letting any researchers access these data to be able to assess these things. I mean, it's essentially hiding that this was a thing until it came out and then saying, yes, we knew about it. It's not that helpful from a progress standpoint. There are other treatments available that the industry says are better than SLICE, but they're controversial. Kelly Speck says the two most common ones are done on a special boat. So they suck their fish out of, say, a pen, suck them into a boat that has a, call it a hold or a hatchery. The fish are dumped into a, a water bath of hydrogen peroxide, sucked out the other end, and then dumped back into the fish. The farms have to ask the government for permission every time to use hydrogen peroxide, called Paramove 50. So you can assume it's not benign. And there's a fine line between treatment and poisoning for the salmon. And we would have to look at whether or not we agree that that pumping of hydrogen peroxide, because once it's used, they go out and they dump this solution, pump it out of their boats into the ocean. Industry argues that the hydrogen peroxide is diluted very quickly in the water. Dan Lewis of the conservation group Clackwick Action says industry has a saying about Paramove 50. The industry's mantra on that is dilution is the solution to pollution. But where they're dumping it is in grey whale feeding habitat. Grey whales eat crustaceans, little critters like mycids. And, you know, grey whales are important to the ecosystem, but they're also the backbone of the whale watching industry in Tofino. The other treatments also involve sucking the fish out of the pens, taking them to the boat called a hydro slicer. Ronky Boschman showed me Greek Seafood's brand new delicer when I visited the hatchery and farm. So this boat, we can pump the fish out of the, out of the pens on the farm into this boat, and then uh, they're, they're treated within the boat. The lice is removed off of the fish, and the lice are captured then, all filtered and captured on the boat, and then the fish are put back into the ocean with no lice on them. This is really the biggest uh, innovation because what we're doing here is now in, in boats like this, they can use fresh water. Just putting the fish into fresh water is enough to knock the lice off. Dan Lewis says the hydro slicer is essentially a pressure washer. Again, they suck the fish out of the uh, pen and then they run them through this. It's a huge mechanical barge contraption and there's... Uh, jets of water in there that dislodge the lice from the fish, and then the fish are put back into the pen. So it's essentially a, a glorified pressure washer, and they're power washing the, uh, the lice off the fish. There's a difference of opinion on how this affects the salmon. Rocky says the treatments are gentle. Bringing fish onto a boat like that and then treating them and then putting the fish back in, in the pens again is really done very, very nicely, uh, without a lot of stress. It's super harmful to the fish. Um, you know, when we are in the area, when they're using the hydrolyzer, we find just a scum of scales. Kelly Speck says the water and the chemical methods usually do the job and get rid of the sea lice, for the moment. But the sea lice situation is so bad, the treatments have to be done repeatedly. So if you repetitively do that, the quality of your fish and what it looks like, it may not affect, you know, the part of the fish that the people are eating, but they don't look very attractive if they're being bashed around by being sucked in and out of these boats repeatedly. You know, they lower their immune system if they're under stress. Everything the three First Nations are doing is providing information they never had before. How the farms are operated, how many fish die from disease or pathogens, and how the companies respond to these events. That's the Broughton Archipelago. 
but the future of B.C. fish farms in the rest of the province is still to be decided. One fish farming area that we haven't talked about in this podcast is hundreds of kilometres from the Broughton, off the west side of Vancouver Island, Clackwick Sound, a very special area of B.C. The Clackwatt Sound Biosphere Reserve encompasses 350,000 hectares on the western coast of Vancouver Island and includes some of the largest tracts of intact coastal temperate rainforest left in North America. The Biosphere Reserve is home to about 3,200 people who live in either the principal town of Tofino or in the surrounding First Nations communities. That was a video by the Clackwick Biosphere Trust, A biosphere designation recognizes special places where the conservation of biodiversity must work hand-in-hand with sustainable use. Clackwick Sound was designated a UNESCO-protected biosphere reserve in 2000. It's been the home for thousands of years for three First Nations, Heshquit, Ahouset, and Quiet. And I mean thousands of years. The oldest dated location within the territory is 4,200 years old. There are two companies operating fish farms in Clackwick Sound. Cermak operates 14 and Creative Salmon operates 6. Creative grows Chinook salmon, the only farm I've heard of that raises Pacific salmon. Most First Nations have put up with the farms in their territory because they had no choice. But in 2015, members of the Ahouset First Nations decided to fight back when they discovered the company Cermak installing a new farm in their territory. Their wild salmon populations had already been decimated, they believed, by diseases emanating out of the fish farms already in the area, and they decided enough was enough. Leonard John of a house confronted the workers on the still unfinished fish farm. We respectfully ask you guys to leave! Just because our three chiefs signed the paper doesn't mean the whole community agrees with what's going on. We're concerned. We respectfully ask you guys to leave. You guys aren't welcome here. Handful of warriors standing up to a huge corporation, Cermak from Norway. They come in dropping their anchors. I come in with my little speedboat, the Sweet Marie, and told them they were trespassing. Called out for help, and more warriors come out from a house. The farm didn't have any fish in it yet, so when the workers left for the day, Leonard and a small group began occupying it. For two weeks, they camped in tiny tents on the steel walkways. Then, in a surprise to everyone, Sir Mac dismantled and hauled the fish farm away. Leonard was relieved to see it go. That's a handful of warriors. Imagine if we can do it as a nation. This would have been Sir Mac's 16th farm in Clackwick Sound. Alex Morton came out to visit the occupiers and was surprised to see Sir Mac leave. Learned a lot from the Houset. I learned a lot from Lenny John that you can do this with respectful dialogue, but you have to put your body on the farm. And that's what we did. And we'll see what happens next. This is not over, but this farm is moving. And this has never happened. The Ahousat warriors had convinced or forced a fish farm to leave. After that, the three First Nations realized maybe they could get all the fish farms to leave. And they began to gather evidence, just like First Nations on the other side of Vancouver Island. Members of the Akhwiat First Nation went onto farms and put GoPros down into the pens. And when they looked at the photos showing sick and dying fish, they were sad and angry. And they put together a video to show their people. Oh, poor fish. This is disgusting. It's like a bad horror show. We saw some fish in the corner that were small fish. Um, that had big, big lesions on them, salmon that had big deformities, really crooked spines. That same year, 2019, Clackwick Action released its investigation into diseases coming from fish farms. Dan Lewis and his partner Bonnie Glambeck founded the conservation group. For a small non-profit, 
the investigation was a big undertaking. Going viral was was one of the biggest projects we'd ever organized at that time. And basically, we got a little bit of funding. It, it only cost, I think, $30,000. And we went out to uh, every single salmon farm in Clackwood Sound that had fish in it and sampled basically stuff that floats out of the fish farm. Of the 20 farms where samples were taken from the water, 19 tested positive for PRV. So clearly the same problems found in the Broughton Archipelago and the Discovery Islands are in Clackwick Sound fish farms too. And with the looming June deadline for renewal of licenses, it was decided to make some noise about what they wanted. the Clackwood people would like to welcome everyone here today. We're proud that you come and stand with us in a fight to protect our coastal communities. Terry Dorward is an elected councillor. The government has lied to us. They said that the pathogens that were being spread through the fish farm diseases, they weren't going to impact the wild salmon, but they did. We're not going to sign this, this renewal agreement. And we need your support too. We need that public outcry to say no, no renewal in 22. People were in canoes and kayaks, pleasure boats and fishing boats, about two dozen of them. And they were joined by First Nations from the Broughton Archipelago, the Discovery Islands and territorial lands on the Fraser River. George Quaksister Jr., hereditary chief from Campbell River, came out in support. We're doing a flotilla to save the salmon. We want all salmon farms gone on the BC coastal water. There's a hundred plus nations that say we do not want this anymore. Hereditary chief and band councillor Ernest Alfred came from Port McNeil. We have no food as First Nations people. Um, our storage boxes are empty and people should be upset about that and I think they are. No Canadian government, no shareholder in Norway, no, no industry is going to replace what is ours naturally. You know, there's, no, there's no such dollar value uh, on our way of life. Call this meeting to order. I'm going to try and cut some of the... As I mentioned earlier, the Parliamentary Committee on Fisheries and Oceans was examining how the department used science to make its decisions and provide advice to the minister. There was interest among scientists, First Nations and environmental groups to speak to the committee and they were all scathing in their assessment of how DFO handles science issues. Uh, perhaps Mr. Mordecai first. For some reason, DFO requires disease relationships to be proven within Canada. Can you imagine if we use similar thresholds in human medicine? The COVID virus would not be classified as a disease agent in Canada since the only human challenge trial was conducted in the UK. Normally in science, reviewers who have a conflict of interest are often excluded, especially if the conflict is financial. Would you ask a tobacco company to review the science risks concerning lung cancer? That will now go to Mr. Bateman. And really the issue that we were discussing is DFO's manipulation of the science advice. The science advice that is presented to the decision makers, ultimately to the minister, needs to be unfettered by departmental manipulation by mid and upper level managers. The committee was told that DFO didn't seem interested at all in the science related to wild salmon. We'll now go to Mr. Probos. DFO appears to obfuscate and cherry-pick science and misdirect Canadians and news media away from inconvenient science and precautionary action. Dr. Miller Saunders, over the years, how has your scientific work been received by the, the international scientific community versus Canadian science community versus DFO? Yes, there is a vast difference in how my research has been taken by, both by the department uh, compared to how it's been taken internationally. Um, I'm repeatedly asked to collaborate on international studies that employ the kinds of technological approaches that I have employed. And it's fairly rare that I've been asked to employ those technologies so it, it has been a frustration, I have to say, in my scientific career to be uh, much less valued in my own department than I am internationally. Thank you. We'll now go to Ms. Morton. 
I don't understand why we have this big, aggressive, powerful aquaculture management division in DFO and no, nothing to counterbalance it with the wild salmon. I, I've looked for the person in charge of wild salmon in, in DFO, and there is nobody, which is astonishing. Chief Bob Chamberlain reminded the committee that science was not the only consideration here, that DFO has an obligation to put First Nations rights first when it comes to fish farms. Two court decisions and the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples have made that clear. It has been said to me that 90% of BC First Nations rely upon wild salmon. 90% of 203 First Nations. This means that wild salmon are far more than a simple menu choice. He addressed the issue of conflict between First Nations who are making agreements with the industry, how a farm in one territory will affect others. When we think about First Nations and, and lands and decision-making and consent as the government pursues this, it would be fine and wonderful if the impacts remain site-specific. But clearly they don't. And so that is where I think the Crown needs to do is balance the impacts and the number of nations' rights who are being infringed rather than the few jobs and the very small number of First Nations that are supportive of this industry. Let's not lose sight of that. First Nations who supported fish farming started a new group and went to Ottawa and held a news conference. They wanted it known that the farming licenses should be renewed in their territories. The coalition was called the First Nations for Fin Fish Stewardship. Dallas Smith of the Cloetzee's First Nation was the spokesperson. We're calling on Prime Minister Trudeau to acknowledge the rights and title of our communities who have decided to be part of this sector. And just like the people who are hoping to get rid of the fish farms, he pointed to the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. UNDRIP is a two-way street. We can no longer talk about self-rights, self-determination of Indigenous people and still use language like consultation, and the minister's going to decide. Dallas says they wanted to let Minister Murray know of the financial hardship to their communities if the fish farm licenses were not renewed. Isaiah Robinson of the Kittisu Heihe First Nation has an agreement with Maui on fish farms in their territory in Klemtu. Klemtu is on the mainland coast south of Prince Rupert. Earlier this year, it announced a partnership with Walmart to sell its smoked farm salmon. The fish farm industry has brought our community out of poverty and with this decision will break our people and take us back 30 years to a time of poverty and suicide. Kittisu reminded the federal government of their fiduciary duty to consult. And the BC Salmon Farmers Association continued to put out videos showing what would happen to local economies if the licenses weren't renewed. It's very stressful, and I think that stress is coming from, you know, the massive impact um, it will have on our industry, on our community, if the licenses aren't renewed. It's also economic stability for the island and, and jobs for our kids. One fish farm company, Maui, sent a nine-page package, a letter and a plan, to Minister Murray just a month before her decision. Maui made it clear it didn't accept the idea of closing fish farms. It pointed out that for Canada to meet its agreements with other countries, there is only one way to go. For this to become a reality, the federal government must demonstrate that Canada is a secure and profitable location for current and future investment in salmon farming by renewing all of Maui's licenses in British Columbia in 2022. Maui's global leadership and board of directors have been clear that the maximum duration of license renewal, together with a fair, inclusive and transparent transition process, will be seen as the necessary signal that there is a future for salmon farming in Canada. The maximum license renewal in the past was six years. That would definitely take the farms beyond the 2025 date. Most importantly, the transition cannot and should not mean the end of marine-based salmon farming. Then the letter turned to Indigenous Reconciliation and the UNDRIP Agreement, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. We have been responsibly farming salmon in B.C. for over 30 years much of it working under agreement or partnership with the First Nations. 
While some First Nations and individuals welcomed the farms, many First Nations would say the fish farms arrived in their territory with no consultation or agreement from them. Darren Blaney told us in the last episode about an agreement his predecessor signed for 30 years for only $35,000 a year in compensation. In addition to sending the letter to Minister Murray, the letter was also sent to the Prime Minister, 23 members of his cabinet, five provincial premiers, and some of their ministers. Attached to the letter was Maui's framework proposal for a transition pathway to reconciliation, certainty, sustainable growth, and innovation. First up was a reminder of the court's decision stopping the minister's first attempt to close farms in the Discovery Islands. We view the recent judicial review outcome as an opportunity to reset and reframe the dialogue between regulator and license holders, rights and stakeholders. It's an opportunity to learn from the Discovery Islands decision. Maui seems to view the court decision as settled law. The letter went on to suggest that agreements with First Nations should entitle industry to the maximum six-year licenses, and some risk to wild salmon is okay. From our perspective, minimal risk means that with appropriate measures in place, the residual risk is acceptable. But the precautionary principle says if there's a minimal risk, you have to act on the side of safety. As its letter suggested, the fish farm industry was working hard at courting First Nations to get approval to stay, offering agreements, agreements that many speculated offered much more money than the 35000 a year the Hamalka were offered in 2015. There were a lot of competing voices leaning on the minister. Our storage boxes are empty. No shareholder in Norway, no, no industry is going to replace what is ours naturally. And with this decision, we'll break our people and take us back 30 years to a time of poverty and suicide. The executive director internationally of one of the companies said to me, we do what you're what your country allows us to. Which is a trigger for them not only to have a plan, but to actually carry it out. The, the DFO regulations still say that they just need to have a plan. Most importantly, the transition cannot and should not mean the end of marine-based salmon farming. You know, I've just finished looking at 300 fish uh, from the Discovery Islands this spring. And I'm, I'm searching for ways to tell people how beautiful they look, how healthy they look, how much promise they hold. This is the only place in the world where fish farms are leaving the ocean. On June 22, 2022, Minister Joyce Murray announced her decision. Fish farms outside the Discovery Islands would have their licenses renewed for two years. That would give the farms time to grow their fish to market size. And in the meantime, there would be six months of consultation. For Alex Morton, it seemed like a good decision. They they had to allow for consultations. We know that because of the previous decision by the previous minister. Uh, you know, it went to court and the, the salmon farming industry won. And so this minister is being more careful. But, but it's a fabulous decision. So it boils down to... The licenses in the Discovery Islands will not be renewed, but there is the consultation process, which will extend into next January. Uh, and as for the rest of the licenses on this coast, they get a two-year license. Because it takes two years to grow a farm salmon, basically what that says is grow your fish and get out. In August, something surprising happened. Pink salmon came back strong. There was lots of excitement. Fishers, First Nations, and environmental groups took to social media to share what they were seeing. After years of minimal returns, there were thousands of pink salmon. Alex spoke to CBC Radio's early edition about what she was seeing. And we're seeing them come down around Alert Bay, uh, East Vancouver Island. They are jumping everywhere. I had the most beautiful uh, experience of watching some of the a-Clan Northern Resident Orca just floating amongst the school of leaping little pink salmon. Pink salmon have the shortest lifespan, just two years. This year's pink salmon would have traveled to sea past the closed fish farms in the Discovery Islands in 2021. 
No one was saying the closed fish farms were the only reason the pinks came back so strong. A cooler water temperature in the ocean is helpful for the production of food that supports the wild salmon, and in 2021, ocean conditions were almost perfect. But many people thought the fish farms were a big contributor to the returns. This year's return is significant, and it is, to me, it is a clear sign uh, that removing farms from very key locations is going to be to the benefit of wild salmon. The fish farm industry wouldn't accept that. The BC Salmon Farmers Association put out a news release with the title No Link Between Wild Salmon Returns and Active Fish Farms. Ruth Salmon, the interim executive director of the industry association, used the news release to attack Chief Bob Chamberlain. Bob Chamberlain, who has been outspoken against salmon farming in British Columbia for many years, has stepped over the line with his latest inaccurate statements to media. In his eagerness to ride the wave of good news, Mr. Chamberlain has severely misrepresented historical data and relied on speculation to try to prove his unwavering belief that there is a relationship between wild salmon returns and salmon farms. His sound bites may sound simple, but his facts are simply wrong. It seemed like very bad PR to attack Chief Bob Chamberlain. It wasn't an attack on one man. To many, it was an attack on First Nations and their right to speak out about wild salmon and the salmon farms. Hereditary Chief Ernest Alford said even for industry, it was a lowball attack. Never really had uh, industry come along before and, and, and attack one of our own, our own people. Um, I thought it was very tacky. They're up against the wall and they're, they're losing this one. So, and they know that. By now, Fisheries and Oceans had started its six months of consultations, meeting with First Nations, industry, conservation groups, and British Columbians. But right away, there were missteps. The consultation, as defined by DFO, didn't sound like a mandate to get the fish farms out of the water by 2025. Stan Probosch, a senior scientist with Watershed Watch, chairs a conservation working group, which includes half a dozen environmental organizations. In the first meeting, they had a lot of questions about how the consultations would work. They asked questions about DFO's online survey. Uh, they didn't tell us a lot about it. We we just had a, like some feedback around it, because when you read the survey, um, there's no mention of any sort of timeline, like the 2025 timeline of transitioning farms. And there was also no discussion around the removal of farms. Dan Lewis was also at the meeting. He says there was no direct question. Do you want fish farms out of BC waters? So they're asking questions like, do you support increased monitoring of wild salmon around the fish farms. And, you know, I, I would think the average person would say, well, yeah, of course we want to monitor wild salmon. Another question asked how to reduce or eliminate interactions between wild and farmed fish. Taking the fish farms out of the water was not one of the answers offered. A few days after the meeting and the complaints, the online survey was taken down from the DFO site, leaving a note in its place saying it was working to resolve the issue. And there were other concerns. The consultation process has several committees, and yet DFO couldn't, or wouldn't, tell them the names of the committee members. They're being very tight-lipped about who exactly is on the various committees they've put together. Because a lot of what they're coming up with looks like it was written by industry. Such as what? Well, the idea that the transition should be driven by industry, that it should be focused on technological change, that new and innovative technologies like semi-closed containment systems will be able to save the day. And finally, the DFO managers told them what was really happening here. Stan Probosch. Uh, well, he provided some quotes that I were burned into my memory. Um, so he said that this is a transition, not a phase out of salmon farms. And he also spoke about removing salmon farms is not within the scope of this project. 
And it was pretty clear that removing farms was just kind of off the table. And what came out in that meeting was really quite disheartening. They, they, they really finally admitted that open net pens will be part of the mix for the foreseeable future here in, in British Columbia. And that this transition is not to land-based salmon farming necessarily, rather just to alternative forms of in-water fish farms. That was the first time they'd flat out told us this is not a transition out of the ocean. Chief Bob Chamberlain has heard similar concerns from First Nations. I've spoken to uh, four chiefs that have taken part in three different of these roundtables and are extremely troubled by the flavor and the direction of the questions. So I'm wanting to see some really clear questions that can't be manipulated in the end. Everyone assumed the long consultation was an attempt to prevent the multinational fish farm companies from going to court and arguing they were blindsided by having to close their farms by 2025. But maybe it was just meant to give the impression of considering all points of view and then flipping the promise and allowing the fish farms to stay. Well, they applied in the spring to expand the size of the fish farms. In mid-September, it was learned that CIRMAC was given permission to expand three of its fish farms in Clackwick Sound on the west coast of Vancouver Island. So they were saying, we, we're going to take these 10, 30 by 30 meter pens, and we're going to replace them with six 40 by 40 meter pens. Why would DFO allow a fish farm to expand if in just two years they're supposed to be leaving the water altogether? Dan says initially he was told Sir Mac had no plans to increase production. DFO assured him that wouldn't happen. There were three applications to increase production. Two of them, they want to increase the production by 50% on the farm. And one of them, they want to increase it by 25%. So that's an increase, a net increase of essentially adding one and a quarter brand new fish farms in Clackwood Sound in the Biosphere region with no public input. Dan points out DFO has no idea what this means for the waste underneath the farms or how it will affect the wild salmon. That there would be no net increase in biomass in the water. That what they would be doing is running fewer, larger farms. And I asked, you know, the minister's aide, like, is there any science showing that fewer larger farms has less impact or in any way will help wild salmon? And he admitted that no, there, he wasn't aware of any science behind that. The consultations will continue until January 2023. And from January to June, there'll be consultations on the issues raised. Then the transition plan will be drafted. There's no date given for that. But this will make it more than a decade since Mr. Justice Bruce Cohen said the fish farms should be removed and DFO should back away from promoting the industry, create a separate arm's-length aquaculture section so fisheries and oceans can do its main job, protect the wild fishery. And all the same problems and issues are still here. Rising disease and sea lice levels on farmed and wild fish, questions about the cumulative risk of these pathogens, and the low salmon returns if they've passed fish farms on their way to the ocean. And after all this time, fisheries and oceans officials are still promising change and setting deadlines they can't or won't meet. So the waiting continues. I'll give the last word to Alexandra Morton the scientist who's been a thorn in the side of industry and government for more than 20 years. She's taken a lot of abuse on social media and in fish farm supportive publications, but she still believes saving wild salmon is the first step in saving the ecosystem. If you think about these fish, so they go out into the open ocean, they collect the energy from the sun hitting the open ocean, then they come home and then they, they enter a river shallow, there's bears, there's seagulls, there's eagles, there's fishermen. They can't feed and they have to swim up a mountain while they're growing their eggs and the sperm. And yet, even given all those demands, 
the males use some of their precious energy to dress up. They grow stripes, turn red, their heads go green, they get teeth, their whole body shape changes. I mean, it's incredible. Alex says if we want to save the wild salmon, we have to start making changes. And first off is to take the fish farms out of the water. It is the biggest removable impact. And so we have to try it. Because uh, in this day and age, to just say, oh yeah, no, we're just going to let the wild salmon go down. You know, you might as well just rip the power cords out of the side of your house. This whole province is going to dim. The trees will grow less well. We're going to lose our whales. We'll lose our tourism industry. We lose food security. You know, on and on and on. And that's it. The story of the salmon people. There are some voices you didn't hear in this podcast. The BC Salmon Farmers Association refused my request for an interview. Sir Mac didn't respond to my emails at all. Some First Nations who have agreement with fish farms also didn't respond to my emails. The B.C. government responded, but said they couldn't find anyone to talk to me. But I want to thank all the people who did talk to me, the scientists and many others who guided me so I wouldn't make mistakes, and any mistakes are mine. The citizen scientists whose actions reminded me that every one of us has a responsibility to act when we see something gone wrong. The First Nations, who patiently explained culture and tradition and helped me understand how control of their territory is an important first step in reconciliation. And the people who run the fishing and whale watch tours, who told me how people from all over the world marvel at the beauty of British Columbia. And to Alexandra Morton, who has a story no journalist could pass up. Salmon People podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, Sandra Bartlett. It's a co-production with Canada's National Observer. Story editing by My Frozen Headphones Production. Sound engineering by Damien Kearns and Ben Ramos Salzberg. Special thanks to Dave Coots for being the voice of the Maui Letter and to the Whale Scout podcast. Please consider giving us a five-star rating and leaving a comment. Or better yet, tell a friend that you know a great podcast about the fight to save BC's wild salmon and send them a link. For Canada's National Observer, I'm Sandra Bartlett. Thanks for listening.